0: I definitely hope that in 10 years, we are at a place where a majority of the cancers or the big cancers are very well treated, where it becomes a disease that, you know, like a chronic thing that you just, you know, you may live with. It may not be gone. You may not be like cured, cured, but where you can live with it and have a a long lifespan. That's my hope.
1: If you've ever wondered what separates top performers from everyone else, you probably discovered it is just a couple differentiators that determine wild success from average results. My name is Don McPherson, and for two decades I've been working with executives to help them optimize performance at the individual, team, and organization levels. Now I interview exceptional people from all walks of life so we can learn from them. Welcome to 12 Geniuses. This is the best time in human history to be alive. One of the reasons for that is the incredible advancements in medicine. There are few things in life more frightening than sitting in a doctor's office and being diagnosed with a life-threatening disease like cancer. Just under 2 million people in the United States will receive that diagnosis this year. Fortunately for those patients, there's an incredible army of scientists around the world developing new treatments to extend their lives and cure their disease. Today's guest is one of those scientists. Sarah Kinkari Mitra is Senior Vice President of Development Sciences at Genentech. In this episode of 12 Geniuses, Sarah will share her story of how she came to America from India, how she rose to lead one of the most important pharmaceutical research teams in the world, and how we are doing in the battle to cure cancer. Sarah, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Can you start by telling us about where you grew up, what it was like in india when you were growing up and how you came about to move to the united states
0: sure yeah so i grew up in a city that's actually very well known it's uh, the city of mumbai in those days it was called bombay and growing up in india you know i grew i grew up in a you know, fairly conservative family where in general women and men uh, were treated very equal. My b- brothers and I, we had a great, you know, we had a great, my parents were very, very supportive of both genders, etc. But it was, you know, a time where in general, uh, girls would would be expected to finish the education and and start a family and generally take care of the family. That was just the general expectation. It didn't mean that women didn't do things other than that. I, right from a very early age, remember that I just loved science and math. I mean, to the exclusion of other subjects, which purely were things I had to do to get, get to the next grade, etc. But I truly used to love math and science. And um, so from a very early age, it was very clear to me that I enjoyed those topics. And, you know, I went to, I went to the science sort of stream, in college. And then I actually was interested to become a physician and to, you know, become a doctor. But I didn't go to medical school. I ended up going to pharmacy school. So I went to pharmacy school and I got a great education in in pharmaceutical sort of sciences. It was very clear to me that that was not sufficient. I wanted to go Further, I wanted to do research. The the number of institutes that do research in India, at least at that time, was not pretty high. And that's when I decided that I needed to look outside of India and ended up coming to graduate school
1: here. How old were you when you came to the United States?
0: I was twenty-one years old when I came to the United States. And you
1: came from you went from Mumbai to Austin, Texas? Mumbai Is that to
0: Austin, Texas to be honest, that my parents were not very sure about this journey of going to the U.S. Looking back, I understand, you know, I was quite young, actually, when I started the application process. Unlike today, where we didn't have the Internet and, you know, the connectivity issues were not there. I was a girl. They, you know, they they just couldn't it wasn't clear to them that this made sense. And so I had to work through a lot of negotiation with them to to let me go, which included if I had a scholarship, if everything was covered, I would be able to go. And luckily, I got I got into about three universities with a fair amount of scholarship where I wouldn't have to pay any any money. Of my own. And one of them was the University of Texas at Austin. My parents agreed at the end because I I had a teaching assistantship and all my fees were covered. And I also got a scholarship to travel. So I didn't have to really look for additional funding or loans and things like that.
1: Did your father have the same reservations that your mother did, or were they different?
0: They both had reservations. My father had traveled outside the country for his job. So he had sort of, you know, been to Europe, etc. And while on one hand he he liked he realized that i would probably get the education i wanted and you know he knew i i had the potential he also feared feared for me to you know leave the home it was the first time i was leaving home i hadn't even lived o- outside my home so so yeah they were very nervous about it and when i came to the us i mean i could barely speak with them for like 5 minutes every week you know once a week and so it it was a the first 6 months were very challenging
1: can you talk about the culture Maybe shock is too strong of a word, but the cultural differences moving from Mumbai all the way to Austin.
0: The cultural piece that was different that I really enjoyed is just the freedom to do things, you know, the the ability to really question things. I think India in general is a very old historic culture. Therefore, there are things you do and things you don't do. And things you just don't question, you know, there are rules of how you live and what you're taught as a child. It's not like those rules don't exist here, but you can question them. And for me, that freedom to just question and find myself and what's right and what I enjoy and what's correct for me was unbelievably liberating.
1: Moving from one culture to a radically different culture must have trained you to be resilient. How has the resilience helped your success?
0: particularly in this industry. You know, I work in the pharmaceutical industry. Most drugs that become drugs or become medicines usually have a life cycle of around 14 years or so some of them never even get into this life cycle. They they are gone maybe in the first year or two. But those that become successful take a very long time. And so I always say that it's an industry of guts. It's an industry of resilience because it takes a very long time to make a medicine. And, you know, if you do not have that resilience, you will give up. And so in some ways, I feel like that trait of, of resilience of resonates really well with my career of what I do. And it's it sort of comes handy in my day-to-day work, comes handy at those times where I'm feeling like, wow, this this is never going to happen. We are never going to move there. And it's that trait of resilience, which is really getting up, testing yourself and just moving. That's been very, very handy for me.
1: Let's talk about Genentech a little bit. We're sitting here in South San Francisco in your office, You've been with the company for 20 years. What's been your career path? How did you get
0: here? You know, my coming to Genentech was completely by chance. I actually did look at Genentech at the beginning when I was a student at UCSF. I was very interested in Genentech. I'd heard about it. It was here. It was founded by people from UCSF. I came by and met a few people, but, you know, didn't like nothing came out of it. It was just a curiosity. I then moved on to do a fellowship in clinical pharmacology at UCSF. It was towards the end of that fellowship and a couple of years later that Herceptin, this drug, got approved from Genentech. And all through my pharmacy career, I'd studied a lot about small molecules and I'd never really learned anything about antibodies and, you know, these macromolecules. I'd heard about you know, we had learned about sort of this concept of magic bullets, you know, drugs that at some day you could have drugs that are targeted to, to your diseased area. Never really seen anything like that. It's a, it was sort of like science fiction. you know. And here it was in the news, this drug Herceptin, which was essentially an antibody that binds to the HER2 receptor, which is on the surface of Breast cancer cells. And it's not in all women, it's in a certain percentage of the population. But if you knew a woman, woman had a her2-positive breast tumor, then her septin actually like, completely changed the course of their disease. This was supposed to be a, a disease that has a really poor prognosis. But when you give them her septum, then you know, today her two-positive breast cancer is is one of the very curable or treatable sort of diseases, right? So I see that in the, in the news. In those days, it was the newspaper. And I was like, cool, this is unbelievable. I want to be there because I have no idea how they do this. And that's the kind of stuff I want to do. Like if I want to go, what's the next thing I would do? That's the thing that I would do. I actually got a call from Genentech, from a recruiter, completely out of the blue. It wasn't like I even applied and said, hey, you know, we have this position. Would you be interested? I just hopped on it. I said, I'm going to come and interview for this position. And that's how I got my job at Genentech. It was as a scientist. I started as a scientist.
1: So you were an individual contributor at that time. And then how did you progress from there?
0: From there, I when I came in, I was a scientist, you can call it an individual contributor. I was a manager. I had a couple of reports, but but it was very, very small group. And and you know, I got involved immediately with a number of projects, et cetera. My next role came into management. You know, I took on I took on great that group grew over the period of time and to the point where ultimately I I ran my first sort of smallish group. I was an associate director. I would say that I had really good managers that saw the potential in me, both as a scientist, but also as, a, as someone that can develop and group people.
1: Can you describe the organization you're leading now in terms of the size of it, the complexity of it, and even maybe geographic locations of it?
0: The group which I lead right now is called Development Sciences. It's a translational organization. And we are an organization of about 550 people. Majority of those are in South San Francisco, but we also have teams in Basel and other parts of Europe, as well as a small team in China. But but the bulk of it is, is right here in South San Francisco. So the team is, you know, the, the organization is uh, responsible for all the translation activities that happen from drug discovery through the development process, both non-clinical and clinical, all the way through approval. The fun part is that we get to see molecules right from their inception all the way through the time when they become drugs and not only drugs that are sold here in the U.S., but sold you know, in countries all over the world. And that access to reach patients around the globe has been amazing.
1: You mentioned when you came to Genentech that you were a scientist and that you only had a couple of people you were managing. What were the competencies required to be successful then?
0: You know, when I first came to Genentech, I would say that my technical background, sort of scientific thinking and the ability to use it, you know, creatively, et cetera. I think just curiosity and learning. As I said, you know, there was so much to learn. One may be a scientist, but to become a drug developer, it takes years. And really applying your scientific thinking to drug development, you know, I still had a lot of learning to do. So, but I brought my scientific thinking, I brought my sort of curiosity and ability to learn and and just the sort of the technical knowledge that I had to the table.
1: And now managing or leading a group of 550 people, I'm assuming the competencies are quite different than what made you successful as a scientist
0: yeah absolutely i would say that technical knowledge never gets off the list you know at least at genentech i think having that scientific and technical knowledge and the depth and sort of the, the experience to to tell you know, what decisions to make, etc. But then I'll add things like decision making, you know, decisions keep getting more and more complex, they get decisions get bigger. So the impact of those are much greater. The other ones I would say is sort of ability to think strategically. And then finally, the last one I would say is prioritizing, you know, I have just because of the, the, the job and the level of the job, as well as the different you as you can imagine, we have at one point in time, we've got about 80 programs going on, right? So there's just so much going on across so many different areas that my need to prioritize is very high. So really being able to prioritize quickly and focusing on what's the most important thing that needs to get, you know, to be done and needs my attention is, is very key.
1: I'm surprised to hear you say that technical competence is still important because it seems like it would be almost impossible to keep up on technical competence across an organization as broad as what you're leading now. How do you do that?
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I, You know, that's why I always say that it's impossible to be sort of the specialist at all of these. But, it, but what I consider myself a specialist at is drug development, you know. And you do that through experience. You do, do that through continuing to read and keep up with what's going on in the external world, learning from, you know, other industry counterparts, studying up and continuing to do that. I think that's the way I keep up.
1: You've accomplished a lot in your career. What one or two things stand out most that you're most proud of?
0: I was working mostly with what I call small molecules or traditional sort of molecules that you, you know, drugs that you take as pills, et cetera. So most of my original training was with small molecules. I had never worked with, you know, antibodies or these big, uh, large uh, molecules, biologics, Somewhere in my career, I started to get more and more experience with those. And there was a program that I got the opportunity to lead and then be a part of. This program was the first time we were going to take an antibody and put a very toxic, small molecule attached to the antibody. The idea was that the antibody would be sort of like a carrier that would go bind to this receptor that was on the tumor cell. And then the drug was a payload it was carrying that would enter the cell and the tumor cell would be killed. So if you just gave that drug directly to the patient, it would be very toxic. But by attaching it to the antibody, it was safely carried to exactly the place it needed to be sort of dumped and kill the cell. So it was a very, very interesting concept. And I got the opportunity to lead it. Part of the fact was that because I had experience in small molecules, you know, it was kind of a thing that allowed me to say, hey, I would love to do this. And so as luck would have it, the program died three months after I took the lead on it people said, oh, this is not going to work. And the few people that were on the team, including myself, just refused to give up. And we said, no, 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 no. You know, I think we think we think we know how to make this work. And so we went back to management and we told them, you know, we, we would love to make this work and we get a little bit of resource. And they gave us some time and some money and said, OK, go away. And we came back in six months with two compounds, exactly the same, but we retooled it such that we said one of these will work. And they chose both of them. Eventually turned on only one move forward. And that became a drug. It's a drug called Cadsila. It's in the market. It's actually also for women with HER2-positive breast cancer. And I'm just really proud that, you know, we persisted. We were trying something very innovative. We were doing something that hadn't been done and it's a drug that's helping uh, women today. So, uh, so that's one of the things that when I look back, I, I don't think I'll ever, I'll ever forget the sort of the, the pride in, in something you, you know, you were the core group of people that made that discovery of that molecule and, and that it actually is a drug today.
1: Our guest today is Sarah Kinkari Mitra, Senior Vice President of Development Sciences at Genentech. When we come back from this short break, we will discuss why it's good to celebrate failure, the progress the pharmaceutical industry is making in its quest to cure cancer, and Sarah will share her advice to women who are interested in careers in leadership and in the STEM field. This is the best time in human history to be alive. People are living longer, healthier lives. Millions of people are escaping abject poverty every year, and diseases that used to be a death sentence are on the ropes. But the world is changing quickly too. Artificial intelligence, advanced robotics, 3D printing, the internet of things, and a host of other technologies will change the way we live and work. Is your organization ready for it? 12 Geniuses isn't just a podcast. We're an organization that educates leaders about the changing world of work. So you can harness new technologies, demographic changes, and innovative business models. To learn how 12 Geniuses can help prepare your leadership team to take advantage of the changes that will shape the next decade, check us out at 12geniuses.com. We're back with Sarah Kinkari Mitra. Sarah, you've spent your career in cancer research, and during that time, the pharmaceutical industry has made incredible advancements to treat diseases that were once considered untreatable. I'd like to ask a question that never seems to go away and everyone still wants to know. Why is cancer so hard to treat and when will there be a cure?
0: Firstly, I don't think that the biology of cancer is fully understood. We've made a lot of progress, but there's still every time a drug is introduced, we still realize there's stuff that we just don't know, you know, and there's incredible advances happening in technology, et cetera. Where I believe that, you know, we the pace has has grown. So it's it's like we're learning faster, but we still don't know a lot. So that's number one. Number two is that cancers tend to, just like, uh, you know, um, HIV, et cetera, they tend to mutate. So you may think you've, you've you know, got a treatment for cancer and, and next thing you know, comes back with a mutation that's, you know, that's completely different. So I think part of it is uh, the ability to figure out the right cocktails and know that that was the whole reason for the cancer, which we, we, still, we still are, uh, there's time for us to understand that.
1: Do you see any treatments that are on the horizon that would be game changers in terms of treating cancer?
0: Well, you know, there's a whole paradigm shift that's happening, this whole concept of immunotherapy. And the whole idea that, you know, we've known for years that the immune system, you know, has a way of surveying the body and keeping, you know, cancers uh, in check. And that at some point that kind of the brakes on that are removed and then, you know, your cancer tends to grow. And so the idea is that find ways to make your own immune system more powerful in killing the cancer. So that's sort of the, the sort of the layperson's way of saying there are some really cool ideas that are going on right now, even at Genentech and other companies, such as personalized vaccines, where we can actually take each person's tumor look at the the new antigens or the new antigens that are cancer-specific antigens that are on that tumor and then make a vaccine very specific for that tumor. So, I mean, this gets as personalized as you can imagine and find a way to see if that person's immune system, which is targeted now for that, their own personal tumor could take care of it. So there are, it's not a straight path. We don't know what will work and what won't. There's still going, going to be a lot of retooling and iterations here. But this idea of immunotherapy is certainly one that excites me.
1: We talked a little bit about failure, and one of the most fascinating aspects of drug discovery is that scientists fail, and they fail a lot. Can you give us an an idea of how many failures it takes to make an important discovery in pharmaceuticals?
0: 10%. If you take the entire cycle, only 10% of what you start with will ever become a drug. So, Oftentimes, you know, when we have failures happen, we want to, you know, we want to fail, but we want to fail early. So all the work that we do is to figure out, can we fail in the early stages, you know, the preclinical phases, before we ever go into patients, And if we go into patients maybe as early, but not like in a phase three, which is the the final stage, the big trials that happen, our goal is to fail fast, you know, fail early. We are going to fail. Our failure rates are probably one of the highest in any industry. And and uh, but, you know, we learn from every failure and each failure teaches us something that that helps that same program or different programs.
1: What advice do you have for leaders outside your industry to help them use failure within their teams for learning opportunities?
0: Yeah, I, I would say, I, you know, it's it's a still a very humbling process, right? I still have teams that really struggle when their molecules fail, and particularly if they fail late, it's it's very challenging. You know, we try. So, firstly, learn from failures. So, you know, doing lessons learned and and sharing those as much as possible. Also celebrating failure. Something I learned along the way is that you really need to be, oftentimes, you know, we're a winning culture. So we often give big kudos and emails go around, way to go for things that worked. But when something doesn't work, we generally send like, oh, it didn't work. But nobody, there's like pin drop silence at that point. And so what we've done is we've tried to have all these, a similar celebration. We'll have like a nice champagne celebration for the team that had the failure because um, they, they still did an incredible job. They learned a lot and we encourage those lessons learned and, and, and things for them. But we celebrate the fact that they got it to this point and there's a lot of learning that they can take back. You know, it's people get up. It might be a week where they're down, but once, they're up, once they've gotten past that, they, they get up and get going again because they know they've learned a lot.
1: I've learned that you practice meditation and it seems like it's becoming one of these things that's very popular among leaders these days. How is meditating making you a better leader?
0: What it does for me is that it it helps me calm down when there's so many things in my head at the same time, which is generally the case. I'm thinking about at least 10 things at one time. And I, you know, given the pace at which we run these days, you end up not being very thoughtful and mindful about what you do. I don't like things that way. I want things to be, I want to know that I'm really paying attention to to things that are important. And so I found that when I meditate, I tend to, it's like everything, it's like snowfall, you know, everything just kind of settles. And then the real important things become very clear to me. And that doesn't take more than five minutes of meditation.
1: Over your career has being a woman, been an advantage in any way?
0: So I don't think it's an advantage as much as because I most of the skill sets that we have, I don't believe that they are female skill sets or male skill sets. I believe we have all have a range of skill sets and then we grow them based on our experiences and based on things that we go through, etc. So I, I, I don't think being a woman has been an advantage.
1: Any disadvantages?
0: you know at a part of, at a time in my career i noticed that there were some things that i would do which or not do which probably came from being a woman or a young girl and also additionally growing up in a country with a different culture so for example really being bold about speaking up feeling comfortable in a room where everybody's talking to really you know make sure your voice is heard. Those were things that as a woman in general, I found women to struggle with those issues. And then particularly if you take women from cultures where they were told, you know, you shouldn't be heard, et cetera, becomes more challenging. So I definitely had things that I had to, they worked against me and I had to overcome them. It was less about the environment and more about just, just, being a woman that was had grown up in a different culture. How did you overcome them? Uh, by being very thoughtful about them. Uh, it's a self awareness. It's a self awareness, and and uh, you know I did take a little bit of coaching at that time specifically on these on these items, so that I learned how I do things. I didn't want to completely modify my style. I've never tried to do that because it is important for me to stay as authentic as I am. But see if there were tweaks that would enable me to to come at it differently.
1: What advice do you have for girls or young women who are considering a career in the STEM fields?
0: I would say that the one piece I noticed because I mentor a lot of kids is tenacity and resilience is important. Patience is important. It is not a career you get in quickly and have quick rewards. You have to learn to stay for the long term.
1: Yeah, that's that's quite evident with 90% failure rate, right? You have to be resilient. There probably have been plenty of times when you were the only woman in a room full of men. Th- this is a situation that might be intimidating for women early in their career. What advice do you have for them as they face this situation?
0: Yes, I, so I have been, particularly as I became more senior in leadership, that was when I started to notice that I would be in a room where I would be maybe one of two women or sometimes just the, the only woman in the room. I would say in the beginning, I would feel quite intimidated and i also learned later on in in life as you know we've been doing a lot of women in science kind of initiatives that's some it's a minority effect so it could completely reverse so for example if you were the only man in a room of or full of women, you would feel equally, you know, intimidated and conscious. It's just a, it's not whether it's a male or a female, it's because you're the minority in that room that you feel that way. So one is just understanding that, like made that different. The second thing is, you know, when I, when this first happened, there was, I noticed that there were stylistic differences between the men in the room and myself. And and you realize initially I thought about, well, how do I want to be in this room such that I'm an equal participant in a room? So I made that a very thoughtful. I spent a lot of time thinking about it. One of the, you know, many women might say, oh, just 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 change your style and to be a little bit more masculine, et cetera. I was not very comfortable with that. I really believed that my style was the right style for me. So I decided that I wanted to keep my style as authentic as it was. But just tweak it as I as I said earlier, tweak it such that I'm heard. I made a special effort to get to know each of the members individually so that they they sort of you know knew who I was. And that made it much easier because then the sort of this, oh, I'm a female, they're males just went away. I was just one of them. I made sure my voice was heard, I was as open as anybody else. And then on it, it was never challenging. It was usually the first time or when they don't know you and you feel like you're the only female in the room. But in places like Genentech, I mean, generally, that hasn't been an issue for me because it's always the discussions become very data-based. And when, when data is involved, it doesn't really matter who's at the table.
1: Just by observation alone, I've noticed that a lot of women don't stand up for themselves when it comes to raises, asking for raises or demanding it when they deserve it, or asking for a promotion. Did you ever have an instance where you felt like you couldn't stand up for yourself when you felt like you deserved something or how did you overcome that or maybe my observation is completely false
0: no your observation is not false i have actually observed the same i will say that i personally have not had that situation i think that i've always been very open and frank if if there was something i was interested in or uh, an opportunity that i was interested in to be to be open about it without you know feeling like there needs to be reciprocation, but I was very open about about my needs about something, but I have seen it in my own groups too, you know, where I've seen that women sometimes can be shy about about things like that, being open you know and clear about opportunities or about pay raises et cetera so i I think your observation is right on personally, I've not had this problem only because I think that. If it came up, I've usually been very open about resolving it.
1: And so what advice would you have for a woman who needs to advocate for herself?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, I would say that women generally may, and this is not, I'm not stereotyping everybody, not everyone is like that. But, you know, if you, if you tend to be someone that thinks that I'll just wait for someone to ask me that's not going to happen, and not because you're not good, et cetera. You know people are just very busy. I think it's really important to be upfront and proactive and state your goals and 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 be open and discuss with with your managers or your your mentors, et cetera, so that people know you know the direction you want to head even if that may not be within your reach, but maybe they'll help you to figure out what kind of opportunities you may want to take to get there, et cetera. But it's not going to happen if you don't speak about it.
1: Before we started rolling the tape, we talked about being a mother mm-hmm. and uh, I believe your daughter is 24 now. Mm-hmm. How, has, how did she change your leadership style or your leadership competency? capabilities
0: in my case uh, my daughter you know has some special needs and from the time that she was born i in addition to just raising a child raising a child that has challenges added a level of complexity that initially i was very worried about but as i look back in hindsight i think it really honed a lot of my leadership qualities i think i had some that were natural and some that just got better because i became more focused I learned advocacy because I have to advocate for her. I am more compassionate because of, you know, understanding when a person has challenges with speaking or walking or, you know, et cetera, you know, just being more compassionate and understanding, but yet being strong and clear when you have to be. I also uh, learned to prioritize even better. I mean, with all that was going on and has been going on in my life, prioritization and focusing on sort of the big things and not trying to not sweat, and I use the word trying because it's not always easy, trying to not sweat the small stuff became very, very valuable. So I, I consider becoming a mother and in particular mother of a special needs child, to, um, you know, has become, has been a sort of a gift to my leadership in some ways.
1: You talked about compassion and, and uh, empathy and compassion, I think, often go hand in hand. And some of the research that I've seen is that as access to information, artificial intelligence becomes more prevalent. Empathy becomes a bigger factor in successful, successful leadership. So I find it interesting that you talk about compassion, and I'm sure that has helped you as a leader. One of the things that I would imagine is that you know when you think about scientists, they, you don't necessarily think about compassion and empathy going hand in hand, but maybe you could talk a little bit about how empathy has influenced, you, influenced your leadership capabilities
0: being a leader in any profession requires empathy. In the healthcare profession in particular, you know, I think that empathy goes even beyond your group because you're when you're thinking about data, it's not just any data, it's a patient's data. So empathy also plays a large role there because I, for myself, speaking for myself, when I'm sitting at any decision-making committee, I also keep the patient in mind. It's not just about the scientific data that I'm seeing, but to remembering that it's connected to, you know, someone's life and some patients and the sort of the immense sense of responsibility that brings when you're at that table.
1: We've talked a lot about cancer during the course of this interview. Where do you see cancer in 10 years?
0: I can tell you what I hope. Yes. I hope, I definitely hope that in 10 years, we are at a place where a majority of the cancers or the big cancers are very well treated, where, pe- where it becomes a disease that, you know, like a chronic thing that you just, you know, you may live with. It may not be gone. You may not be like cured, cured, but where you can live with it and have a, a long lifespan. Well,
1: that's a great hope. And based on your experience, when you look back 10 years, are we on the trajectory to get where you want to go? 10 years from now? I
0: think they're definitely on the trajectory. You know, we may not get there exactly in 10 years, but I think we are on the right path. I think the pace is picking up. I think the sort of the scientific advances in our ability to understand tumors and their genomics and, you know, this new immunotherapy and completely new line of of treating cancers. I de- we definitely are on on the trajectory given the the time it takes to make drugs you know it's it's challenging the fda has been very very um, instrumental more lately in trying to get breakthrough designations and helping helping companies to move faster through this process so i think you know if we can work against the clock in some way and 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 make this happen faster it'll be a huge thing for patients
1: last question for you if you were to meet someone diagnosed with cancer what words of encouragement would you have for him or her
0: yeah if i if I meet someone that has and I have friends that have been diagnosed with cancer, firstly, I would say you know at least we can say we are at we' are, you know you're living in a time where we know much more and there's much more to that you can do to treat these cancers right so so it's like blessed to be in a time where you know we like science allows us to know much more about your cancer. And secondly, there's more treatments and better treatments available that will help you. I mean, I think statistically, there are more people living with cancer today than they did 10 years ago. So that is also an advantage. Um, And, you know, that uh, the healthcare system... you know, is, is set up to help people with cancer to actually get through those treatments. So I would say hold hope and, you know, try and uh, look for the look for good treatments that are available and, and don't lose hope.
1: Where can people learn more about you or about Genentech?
0: For Genentech, they can go to www.gene.com and certainly they can learn about me either on the gene.com website or, um, you know, on, on the internet, I guess. I,
1: I know your presence is available on the, online because I've read a lot about you in preparation for this, for this interview. Sarah, thank you for being a genius. Thank you. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. Your time is precious and we truly value it. To help continually improve the show, send us your feedback or guest ideas to future at 12geniuses.com. This show couldn't come to you if it weren't for a group of exceptional people. Special thanks to Tony Gordon, Jay Ludgrove, and the rest of the team at GL Productions in London. Finally, if you want more information about how we can prepare your leaders for a rapidly changing business world, Influenced by shifting demographics, new technologies, and innovative business models, go to 12geniuses.com.